Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. And uh, we have a very special guest today, uh, Kirk uh, Schneider. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Arash. Great. So uh, my, my first question is, is, is always the toughest one. How would you briefly describe yourself to our audience in any way you see fit? What would you say? That's about as tough a question as I've ever had. Uh, I'm, I'm a curious, uh, highly interested, and I would say adventurous human being who uh, has a love of life and of humanity, in particular, those close to me, but also as a general sensibility, certainly concerned with the human, uh, the human race, the human direction, uh, struggle, have been for a very long time, and probably goes back to my some of my own struggles as a, as a person. But uh, I'm particularly concerned that we're in a race against time right now as a species. Uh, and if we don't address the underlying uh, issues, themes that are fueling increasing divisiveness, both within the self and among ourselves as, as a people, uh, we're, we're going to, we, we are threatened with extinction or at least very, very painful times ahead. Yeah, yeah. So so uh, your book is called Life Enhancing Anxiety and uh, Life Enhancing Anxiety, Key to a Sane World. And so there are already various things that uh, immediately caught my interest when I just, just read the title. Um, anxiety, and that's something that we are afraid of, we try to avoid, we try to deal with and manage. And you actually saying a different thing is like, no, let's not do that. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk exactly. about that in a moment. And your second part, key to a sane world and exactly what you're describing here, I look out and it's not sane. Sanity is the one thing that's missing in the world, especially nowadays. And I haven't lived a, lived a long life, but uh, I can say that it's like, Preserved, just to, to say the least. So, um, yeah, let's start off with anxiety. And what do you mean by anxiety here? And what's uh, how could it be life enhancing? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, first of all, my, my main point is that I think that we're uh, skyrocketing with rates of anxiety in our world today, in great part because, precisely because we're not addressing the underlying deeper anxieties that we should and need to be addressing from the point of birth, actually. And often our caretakers, uh, the culture that we grow up in, uh, are not well equipped to help us address some of these bigger questions like, how do we really want to live our lives? What really matters about our lives? Uh, how do we get along with each other? Uh, what really matters to you? 
as a, an individual? Um, how do we live in the face of, of death? Now, of course, you, you can't really bombard a, a neonate <laughs> with those questions right away. But my point is uh, the, the whole importance of being met as soon as we are thrown into the world. And uh, I, I really see this as the, the source, the origin of anxiety in, in connection with Otto Rank. Uh, I, I think that he really captured a lot of this problem uh, with his uh, work on the trauma of birth. I would call it the drama of birth because I don't think it's just traumatic. I, I really believe and have experienced with my own child elements of wonder mm -hmm. and, and discovery in that birth process. But uh, I would say the origin of anxiety is at that crucible where we shift from relative non-being and unity with the all to sudden abrupt being and disunity or pandemonium and how we're floundering and, and, and feeling helpless. I call it helplessness and groundlessness in that moment. And I, I think that really is, is the seed of anxiety for many, if not all of us. I mean, we're, we all share that experience and we, we don't really uh, address it enough. I think, uh, in, in common culture as well as our, our field of psychology. But um, so my, my point is that anxiety includes, uh, at its core, it certainly includes elements of apprehension, dread, tension, uh, you know, racing heart, uh, uh, sweat, uh, the, you know, the opening of sweat glands, et cetera. Uh, just a, a kind of a, a fear, basically a fear of the unknown. Mm -hmm. If you want to capsulize what anxiety is, it's fear of the unknown. And that happens again from the beginning. However, I do believe that uh, anxiety is a very many-sided sensibility. And we not only experience, if, if we can experience the fuller sense of anxiety, we not only experience the arousal of all those, you know, dreadful and terrifying things uh, and things that have to do with this radical encounter with otherness and with difference. Again, the moment we're born and all the threats that that can pose because we have no equipment to, to deal with that. Uh, but not only experience that, but I think we, we also experience elements of, hey, this is pretty amazing. <laughs> look, look at what I'm seeing. And uh, I, I remember my, my son, I was right, I presided at his birth. When he first came out, he was, he looked totally befuddled and, and shaken. Uh, but then in a few moments, he started looking around <laughs> and it, it seemed to me that that was the point where he was moving into a kind of wonder, a discovery, uh, you know, what is this about? And 
maybe even a little bit of uh, excitement about that. Mm -hmm. So uh, that that's my point is I, I, I think we really overemphasize the dread and uh, paralyzing aspects of anxiety and we underemphasize uh, the way anxiety is a signal also of us being at the edge of something, the edge of discovery, mm -hmm. the edge of possibility. I love your use of the word awe specifically, yes. because like exactly. it, it, wonder is something that it's just like, just positive things, whereas awe and the word awesome, uh, for the longest time when I was uh, learning English too, was, was confusing because you say awesome, the definition is fearful, but we use it as something good. So yeah. that kind of like, kind of like Taoism, the yin and yang of looking at both sides. And I, right. I see everything, everything as, as a blessing in disguise. So especially and particularly for myself, my anxiety and my suffering, because that has been uh, the biggest uh, factor for growth for me. And so when you're saying that we, um, I would say anxiety is a, is a gift that we need to receive, acknowledge uh, and unwrap and then look at it and process it. And that is what I find a lot of people are so scared of anxiety. They're afraid of fear. And that's like they, they're trembling from it and they don't advance and they don't reap all the benefits that are entailed in this, in this package here. Yes, very well said. I mean, the, the sense of awe in my, my own experience is an outgrowth of life, of life enhancing anxiety <laughs> that happens from the start. It's a mixture of apprehension and uh, uh, kind of fearfulness about what we're encountering, encountering the, the radical otherness that we're encountering with uh, these elements of curiosity, wonder, fascination even, and the sense of participating in something much greater than ourselves. So I define awe in a nutshell as uh, the sense of humility and wonder, mm -hmm. the sense of humility is really important. This is really important. Very important. Gets out of our own way. Yeah. Humility, yeah. smallness, and wonder. So the sense of smallness, fragility, uh, being able to have access to our vulnerability in living, mm -hmm. but also at the same time access to taking risks, venturing out, uh, creating, and, uh, and, and, and again, experiencing the joy of participating in something much greater than ourselves as we generally conceive it, being able to grow basically. And, and not to avoid it. For me, it's like, because right. a lot of the fears that I had were unfounded fears and they're actually blown out of proportion because they weren't a big deal but i thought they were maybe because also like again to focus on myself and my my worries and so on <laughs> and uh I, that's not helpful but the problem is that i find a lot of people are not comfortable with discomfort they 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 have this that's comfort right. zone and they don't want to step out of it because they say okay i'm, I'm scared of what will happen the unknown as you're mentioning and, right. uh, um, and we're missing out because it, it's really a philosophical question here. 
of talk yes. about existence. It's not just like, you know, I live by, I, I work, I have the family and this, but what else do you want? What gives you satisfaction in life? What do you, what do you want out of life? And yes. you have a glimpse of that with love though. We say it's better to have right. love uh, and lost than not have loved at all. That's but right. that applies to every aspect of our life. And I'm just like very disappointed to see people who uh, are okay with a status quo that is really low. That is like the threshold is really low because they say, okay, I, I, I got, my, uh, got my medicine here. I, I'm not dealing with anxiety. I'm uh, using entertainment in a, in a mindless way. I'm not learning anything. I avoid deep movies because then they would make me think and I don't want to deal with my thoughts. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like an escape from life. And it's the opposite direction. They're, to me, in, in my point of view, they're, they're zombies. And the problem is also because their caregivers were zombies too, in a sense. So they didn't face those issues. So we can't really blame them. But at some point, we have to kind of, we have to wake up, I think. Yeah, again, very well put. I, you're really addressing how fear mm -hmm. is is. Uh, so much at the basis of what keeps us from life-enhancing anxiety, mm -hmm. from being able to experience awe and, and this kind of inner freedom mm -hmm. uh, to live, to more fully live. Um, and I should probably define life-enhancing anxiety. In a, in a nutshell, it's, uh, it enables uh, us to live with and make the best of the depth and mystery of existence. Mm -hmm. How do we live with and make the best of the depth and mystery of existence? Or to put it another way, uh, it's that invigorating anxiety that includes elements of wonder and discovery, as well as uh, dread and apprehension. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's the, I think that you put your finger on really the, the crux of the problem with so many, and certainly in our culture, mm -hmm. and in many cultures, especially industrialized cultures in the world today, we have so many ways to communicate uh, fear, uh, fear of the fuller experience mm -hmm. of our vulnerability in the world and our possibility in the world and we have ways of covering it over and a lot of them are technological not only you yeah. mentioned you know mm -hmm. through some of the quick fix uh yeah. medications uh, maybe uh, videos that we see but we generally lack patience we we don't take no. the time and we want a quick fix right and it's it's gotten worse i mean it, it existed before too but i think technology because uh when i had the internet first it would take quite some time to load the page i mean you, you can relate to that and so yeah. um and and I, I i'm patient with it but now i see like my son is like if it takes like more than five seconds it's like what's going on and, uh, and so That's i think right. that mentality we we need to change and one thing I'm, I'm strongly against too i'm worried about is things like positive thinking and uh, i i never like that because it's like you're kind of like positive thinking you're just fo focusing on one part and avoiding all the negative stuff which is the more interesting parts actually of realizing what what's causing it so just like saying yourself uh, to yourself a mantra or a like mindset the idea of also you just change uh, your mindset it doesn't work that way 
And uh, my issue with cognitive behavioral uh, therapy is also like you're, you're looking just at the surface. You're trying to change something that's very superficial, but you're not getting to the issues and it won't solve the problem. It won't bring you the happiness and joy and awe that you're talking about here. Well, of course, that's been a concern of mine for a long time. And I've, I've written many critiques mm -hmm. about the superficiality that has dominated uh, the field of psychology, unfortunately, and, and our culture in many ways. That being said, I don't want to turn this into a black and white issue. I do think that this has a lot to do with people's desire and capacity for deeper experience or fuller experience. And not everyone has the desire or capacity to go into these deeper places. However, well, because they're afraid because, in many cases, though. Sorry, it's because, because of the culture, you know, <laughs> which yeah it, yeah, it sends the message. The culture or the caretaker sends a message: don't go there. Stay in the, yeah. you know, the well-trodden path the, with the conventional way of doing things in a very routinized way, you know, an adjusted way. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes me think of Martin Luther King's statement: "Well, sometimes we need creative maladjustment, right?" Or, <laughs> but it's something like that. That that we need more. Uh, you know, constructive maladjustment because so much of our culture is adjusted mm -hmm. to, yes, what I would call uh, in some ways insanity. <laughs> when we talk about the extremity of violence in our culture, the divisiveness, the, the bigotry, uh, the, the extremism, uh, you know, in, in terms of the materialism and uh, uh, just uh, the, the degree of addiction and pathologies, quote unquote, that we have. And, so, and that's a negative insanity, too. But there's the, the insanity of life where things don't make sense, where you're like, you, you notice that our, our, our way of thinking, like rational thinking, logical thinking, just doesn't, doesn't cut it. It's not enough. So there's this like other right. world. That is out there. So one one of my issues with 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 psychology is something I'm very fascinated with. But with psychology itself is that it's it's gotten in a different way, and it's like now trying to deal with like okay with people who have issues, quote unquote issues. And so I think that's not that should not be the aim of, of psychology. I think like just like Maslow and, and others, we need mm. to live life more fully. So it should be more like a positive approach to it, not fixing things. Of course, that's part of it, and that's important. But looking at improving our lives, looking at enjoying them more. And yeah. uh, uh, Otto Rank for me, uh, I, I just discovered him by kind of by accident because I, I was I love Freud, but I saw yeah. the limitations of Freud because his yeah. focus on like biological drives and, yeah. and sex and so on. That's it's right. just a very limited view. I mean, he's, he's wonderful, and I'm, I'm not bashing yeah. him yeah. anyway, but. He was upset with Otto Rank when Otto Rank, his, his oh. secretary, came up with a much better version of psychology. So. It was a shame the way he was exiled from the terrible. Life. But but I don't think Otto Rank got the uh, the attention and recognition he he deserved even to this day. I, I think that's he's, right. he's that's right. He's We're trying way. to change that, by the way. That is wonderful. And thank you. We have you an international for... conference on him. Exactly. Up in November. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know about that, but that sounds very fascinating. But again, he talks about the soul 
And psychology, yeah. psyche is the soul. It's the study yeah. of the soul, not the study of a brain or a mind. It's the soul that he's talking about. Now, one question I'm at specifically about Otto Rank is, I don't think he actually believed in a soul, but he was advocating for it. Is that correct? Yeah, well, of course, it depends on what you mean by soul. I mean, yeah. my understanding of what Rank did is he shifted psychoanalysis from a, a position of focusing on our relationship to bi our biology, mm -hmm. you know, sexual aggressive drives and the, the restraints of society that we internalize to, to deal with that, mm -hmm. to our relationship to existence, mm -hmm. to being itself and, and how, how that is the deeper and larger problem Again, as I say, right from birth, we make this radical shift from relative enmeshment in existence to suddenly being thrown into a, a consciousness yeah. toward it, like the fall in the Garden of Eden, right? It could be seen as Eric Fromm is beautifully yeah. articulated. Yeah. The fall can be seen as the awakening of consciousness as well as sin, you know, in some circles. Uh, I prefer the awakening of consciousness part because there's a real beauty to, to that and, and what folks like Ronk uh, opened our sights to, where again, we can experience the fuller ranges of our, of our human being the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> they all need to be there to live a fuller life, meaning we need to have access to our, our deepest dreads as well as our most dazzling desires, our sorrows, our fears, our outrage, and our, uh, again, our capacity for joy and exuberance and creativity. Uh, and um, sense of connection mm -hmm. with that which is greater. And, and I think that's basically kind of in a very outlineish form what Brock meant by soul mm -hmm. yeah. and the deeper relationship. Yeah, and uh, I, I have a quote here that uh, by Otto Rang, this is reading his uh, his book, and I just want to share it here, and I wrote it down so I don't get it wrong. Uh, the emotional strength of psychoanalysis is its scientific weakness. It is both science and metaphysics, psychology and soul study, without a clear separation or differentiation of the two spheres. So we're talking about a type of meta-science. It's not just science, because I think science is is also too focused on things that uh, that are important, but it's missing out on a lot of other things. And that's where psychoanalysis sure. has this force even more than other uh, branches of psychology of really getting to the, to the root issue and like, and looking at the soul itself, not just bits and pieces there. That's right. And, and that's where Freud, I believe, started us off on <laughs> a did, yeah. marvelous path with his focus on the yeah. unconscious or subconscious. But he was worried about the science too. And that's that's the thing because he wanted to make it more scientific. And well, that's where he got a bit into trouble in my view. I, I, I think so, yeah. yeah. He, he was trying to appeal to the, the <laughs> science of his day. And I would call it a, a particular kind of science. I don't see it as a fully human science. Mm -hmm. I think if psychology comes into its 
fully human science, it will very much include intimate phenomenological qualitative research, meaning inquiry that is about subtle and nuanced descriptions of human experience, mm -hmm. which would also include the arts and the humanities as mm -hmm. well mm -hmm. in, in the rendering. And this is something William James, the founder of psychology, really advocated, but it got dropped pretty much as soon as the behaviorist came in uh, soon after him with folks like John Watson and Skinner, et cetera. Uh, and is that, and, and that of course, lack that of a lot confidence, lack of security, sorry, of like trying to prove ourselves. We're science. We want to be uh, respected and accepted by you guys That's instead right. of doing your own thing, which is where, where Otto Rank did his own thing. And then, yes. then people didn't know how to respond. They didn't want to make Freud angry because he was really angry with that. Right. And just very like stubborn and uh, narrow-minded certain parts in certain ways so right. and that, that causes a backlash against uh, against Otto Rank and for me the most fascinating thing about Otto Rank was this uh, this idea of death and birth of course yeah but for me death because we are afraid of death so any anything that's subconsciously driving us the fear of the unknown is is the fear of death and so when you group with people who are the same as you you feel safe because they're going to protect you the other is seen as the enemy because you're afraid they will kill you. It's it's this is the driving force that we don't often acknowledge. And this is why also we, we love horror films because we, we're watching it. We experience death, but we're in a safe place. And so it plays out in our psyche. We enjoy it, but we know that nothing could happen to us. We watch well, atrocities that happen across the world and we feel relief because uh, it's not me, it's them. You know? Yeah. I think that's part of what happens with our fascination with horror. And as you know, I wrote a book called yeah. Horror and the Holy. Um, yeah, that's part of it is that we can be safe. I think the other part is uh, something like what Susan Sontag said about the psychology of transgression, mm -hmm. that especially great classic horror, which is often about what H.P. Lovecraft called cosmic fear, symbolic fear. Uh, mm -hmm. that, as Sontag says, takes us to places we don't usually go. Yeah. And it gives us knowledge that we often don't know. Mm -hmm. So yes, that can be horrifying and, and paralyzing, or, and it can also be quite intriguing. And, uh, and I think that's part of the appeal of a Frankenstein or a Dracula is, they are portraying the extension, uh, the, the, the meta perspectives of living in a sense, mm -hmm. where, where we could be going like Victor Frankenstein extending human life, right? Mm -hmm. But he's meddling at the edge of what, what's acceptable and what's tolerable. And, and you could say, that the horror part is that he goes too far with it because he makes a grotesque mess of it. But the wondrous part, the say awesome part, is uh, more in the realm of uh, his inquiry, his radical inquiry, his willingness to take risks, to explore these new possibilities for living a more vital, potentially a more vital life. 
and a more enduring life. Uh, similar with Dracula, he takes us to this very underground world mm -hmm. where people can communicate non-verbally, mm -hmm. uh, he can read minds, etc., and operate at the world of extreme subtlety. Well, maybe we can and are moving toward having more of those capacities in our ways of relating to one another. It also brings out the importance of our nonverbal ways of being with each other, not just verbal, just so important in psychotherapy and, and in healing, I think, being more embodied in that way. But again, he goes to these grotesque extremes. But someone like Van Helsing, who, who is a scientist who is fascinated by the realm that Dracula dwells in, but not overtaken by it. He can maintain that more or less centered stance, both in the conventional world of scientific inquiry and the world where those boundaries are much murkier and he's much less uh, grounded. So I think he represents more of that life-enhancing anxiety because he can move into both realms and bring back the riches of, of those boundary-breaking places in ways that hopefully society can grow from and evolve from. You mentioned the horror films, and you mentioned actually movies that I've seen, Last Frontier. And so one of the movie experiences that I, I told myself after I watched it, I said, I wish I could unwatch. I don't usually have that, but Antichrist was a movie that was very uncomfortable for me. And I love Lars Frontier's work. That one did not sit well with me, and for good reason, for good reason too. But I was so happy to 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 read your re review on it because it did change some of my perspective of it. Because mm -hmm. um, my first impression of Antichrist was again um, like the devil and, and and all that, but I didn't relate it to Nietzsche, which which really changed my whole like understanding of the film. Uh, it still doesn't take away the gruesomeness and the violence. I mean, that's still I wish I could unwatch, but. Um, I see the point that is being made there. And so that kind of openness of exploring things uh, and uh, places that are really uncomfortable of watching movies that is not, uh, it's not just for enjoyment. It's like, you know, processing things and dealing with things. And finally, I think the ending though, and that's like people have focused on that because it seems to suggest that women are witches and, you know, there's this group and so on. And that was the what the critics focused on more and right. accused him of uh, misogyny, which is ridiculous because when you look at his his, his work, his women are the, the heroes, uh, heroines of, of his movies. So I, I just don't understand why... Mm -hmm why people just look at one thing and get it wrong and then There's, they assume it applies to everything. They've got the superficial take on it. That's exactly. my view. Exactly. They don't yeah. see that that ending yeah. is something like what Goethe brings out in Faust when mm -hmm. he talks about the women. You know, it's sort of the female principle that is at play there. And in the ending of Antichrist, mm -hmm. he is walking with a cadre of you know, semi-naked women, right? Mm -hmm. Through through nature. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, these things can be interpreted in many ways. Mm -hmm. But I think that provides a counter, 
a counterbalance to just focusing on um, his wife's uh, identification with witchcraft in the film and in her thesis. Um, I think what the wife was struggling with and what they were as a couple struggling with was something that maybe women are more natively in touch with because they give birth, because perhaps they're closer to the existential ground of our being. And that uh, this was a big message that ran throughout the film. You're, you're not going to address that deeper ground, that abyss, unless you can get down there with each other in a, in a much more embodied, uh, you know, intimate sort of way and, and, and work with it and, and be more fully present to all, that, as much as possible that comes up during those times. This couple was obviously in tremendous grief and you can understand that having lost a child, right? And it's interesting uh, that the, the husband is a psychologist. I missed the fact that he was actually right. cognitive behavioral. What is the use but cognitive behavioral therapy? Yeah. But, but it's, it's also the field itself, though, because it's it's like focusing too much on things without really getting to the to the root issue and dealing with it. And I think one thing that um, uh, I think is important is that you actually do what you what you preach. You uh, you follow through with it uh, as, as as a psychologist too, so that uh, you can talk about fear. But if you're not facing your own fears, then that that's yes. that's pretty useless. It's like I had a dentist who had crooked teeth, and I'm thinking, should I trust you? You know, and and uh, I think that is something that's often missing. And I, I've had a lot of people here on my podcast, and where I, some of them who I would say they get it, and some of them who are experts, quote unquote. But I don't think they do, and but they think yeah. they do. So, it, and I think that's causing here more confusion thrown into the mix of like how to how to continue. Yeah, and and in the movie, um, Willem Dafoe uh, pays a price for <laughs> that. You know, very professionalized stance. Very painful price. With his Terrible yeah. price. Yeah, in, in, for, on many levels within yeah. himself and relationally with her of course mm -hmm. yeah. and, and but it's it's seeing the, the death as as part of life and i think and not trying to escape that feeling because i think one of the things is we try to delude ourselves that we're going to live forever that death is non-existent and i think that is really the source of our anxiety like Otterang would say and that we need to address that and we need to come to terms with that in, in any way that that works for us but by ignoring it, it doesn't go away. And that is also translated in what I would say myself to, I would uh, try to ignore conflicts, hoping one day they would go away or things like that are happening in the world, like uh, uh, the, the, the climate uh, disaster that's going on. And, but if we don't look at it, we think ah, it will fix itself on its own. And it doesn't, it won't. The world is burning. As yes, it yes. Yes. And what are we doing? Are we playing fiddle? Mm -hmm. uh, but but yes, we also so think crises. we're not powerful. We talk about empowerment, but uh, the, the things that are, we are often taught is not empowering in itself. Because empowerment is like realizing how much 
power we do have as individuals, as just single individuals. And we see that power when you stand up against, let's say, a cult or a group and you state your opinion and immediately you're, you're ostracized, you're attacked. And that is a power each of us has. But instead, we conform. Instead, out of fear, that's understandable. So we follow the others. We dare not speak. We keep silent. And I think that is when we give away our power. We basically give it away to them. And it's, 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 it's not healthy for anyone, for ourselves and for the world itself. Well, and that's partly because there are systems that are so invested in suppressing and removing anxiety <laughs> exactly. yeah. that uh, they will destroy and they will devalue or demean those who, who challenge them, mm -hmm. uh, those who come up against them, who come up against the quick fix instant result model of living which is basically a lot, a lot of our socioeconomic model, how it runs. There are tremendous vested interests in that. And so I do have an empathy for all of those, all of us who are challenging that system in ways that we can. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm also doing my best to try to to be in dialogue with that system and to present alternatives you know, mm -hmm. through writing, through actual dialogue groups as well. Yeah, the, Terence Malik has a great film called uh, Hidden Life. It's about an, uh, an Austrian uh, farmer. And what I loved about that, because he did not do the Hitler salute. And it got him into serious trouble until like people were like forcing him in the village. It's like, why are you not doing this? And he said, I just can't. And he stood up. But but what uh, impressed me was how afraid the, the Nazi officers were with that disobedience. And so he's, he's thrown in jail, he's tortured, and the Nazi mm -hmm. officer says, look, why are you doing this to yourself? He says, see, you're, why do you think you're in prison? And he says, I, I, I'm actually not in prison. It's like, I, I feel free. It's like, but you're in this place. Why are you in this place? He says, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why I'm in this place. I shouldn't be here, right? Yeah. And it, it's again just a, a just a regular farmer who had no say. But it's that insecurity that surrounds us. So when when one person stands up, that is the moment where we can bring about change, and that is so important. But you will be attacked viciously now in a cult or even in a political group. You but have it's to really be, worth it. It's really worth doing that to yourself and, 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 and for others as well. well. That's something everyone has to soul search, but I do believe it's worth it, at least yeah. in the, the way I'm approaching it. I hope it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some people give their lives for it. Yeah. But again, I think we need to go back to how much this threatens at the level of primal fear, <laughs> our primal fear of helplessness and helplessness. Yeah. And when you get to that primal place, it's like being cut from the uh, cut from the mothership mm -hmm. and free floating in outer space. People will do everything they can to avoid that feeling if they have not been more equipped to live in that suspension. Yeah. That's why I talk about the aim of existential depth therapy is to help people find ground within groundlessness. They're, they become, through that process, ideally, 
radically aware of how we're all living in this suspense and this groundlessness. We're all helpless at a certain level of being. That's just our human uh, flesh and blood condition. However, through the therapy, hopefully people learn to be more present to those vulnerable parts of ourselves, those parts we blocked off, and thereby be more connected with our whole body experience, and thereby be able to experience much wider and deeper ranges of those places where we can find little footholds or, or grounding, being fully aware that we're in the groundlessness. And, and that's not a bad thing either because it, it signals that we can continue growing and being on that edge of hopefully manageable anxiety, but also with the humility that we can only do so much and be so much and not get in our way. And, and to have a positive outlook, I mean, I, I'm against positive thinking, so thought itself, but having a positive outlook and saying, okay, this is what I'm going through. It's It happens for a reason. It has a purpose. And it's actually good for me if, if I dive into it. I like how you're mentioning post-traumatic growth, but that life-enhancing anxiety is much more than that because yeah. it's it's really expanding you and if yeah. there are certain thoughts we if we never think it or if we don't feel those feelings they don't exist for us but yeah. we need to open up they are there and once we open up to them it's like uh, like plato it's his case you come out and you see that sense of awe and wonder astonishment but instead, we're just like we sit comfortably in our in our cave and just watch uh, screens and so on, and don't realize there's so much more out there. And actually, that mm -hmm. is the true reality of existence that we're yeah. we're just ignoring. And that it's in the everyday. Mm -hmm. Do you remember mm -hmm. the film American Beauty? Yeah, yeah, great film. I often think of that scene where that young man invites the daughter, Kevin Spacey's daughter, to his home, yeah. the neighbor. And he seems a little eccentric, mm -hmm. yeah. but, but he shows her a video of just yeah. a plastic bag mm -hmm. slowly drifting to the ground and noting somehow the, the, the eloquence of that or the, the beauty of that, the way the bag moves, the, the, the way the wind catches it. The, the kind of meditative uh, or contemplative uh, rhythm that one can get into as one observes that scene. Well, I think American Beauty was really all about that. It was about discovering the extraordinary in the ordinary. Yeah. Being yeah. able to take time to pause, again, to develop more presence, yeah. Yeah. to moment to moment uh, experience with ourselves, with others. I, I think really like pausing that, like the voice in our head and just kind of like listening. So uh, plastic bag is, is the at least poetic thing you can imagine, but it has poetry within it. But I, I would take my walks and for the longest time, I did not hear the birds. I did not see the ducks. And at one point I say, why am I not paying attention? Why am I not looking at this and what joy I get from it by just like not worrying about what will happen tomorrow or what happened in the past, but presence, being in the present and really like being open to that more than meditating. It's not focusing on my breath. I want to just experience everything. 
And yes. emotions that are coming, negative emotions too, and horrifying things too, to explore them, to give them space so they can they can kind of come out and then they disappear and they won't come back uh, after a while, which is really amazing yeah. because it's liberating indeed. And they can open us to new possibilities. Mm -hmm. But also, like you say, we're often much more terrified in our fantasies yeah. of what's going to happen yeah. and what actually happens. And we see that over and over again in psychotherapy. And also, uh, I've certainly witnessed it in my own life. That being said, I, I do want to stress that I don't believe one can, I think it's very difficult for one to be in awe every moment. And I don't think it's recommended, actually. <laughs> I don't recommend it. <laughs> no, I don't recommend that. And, and I think it's just a reality that, uh, you know, if, if somebody's about to punch you in the mouth, it's very hard to be in, in the state of awe at that moment, to pause, to be fully present. But we're usually not, and hopefully won't be, under imminent threat and imminent danger. But, but to know it's there. I mean, you don't have to live every moment of that, but to know it's there. And if the things get uh, troubling and difficult, you say, oh, I still got that awe. I still got that. I can always go back to it. So it's it's there. Oh, that's right. And that 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 gives us comfort and so us to go through the tough times and uh, yes. not to avoid it. I mean, I, I think like uh, it's uh, suffering is really a great opportunity to connect with things that we didn't connect before. Otherwise, oh, we're, we're stagnant. And one of the things I don't like is actually perfectionism, because I, I think, well, why do you want to be perfect? It sounds like the most bland and boring thing because there's no change, no growth. You're just stuck. And to me, it's that that evolving thing. So, oh, this is a new lesson. This is a new experience. This is a new thing that I'm going to try out and, and, and to be open to that instead of immediately shutting down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's... I, I think I think of awe as an ever flowing fount, an ever flowing well. Yeah, I like that. I like that. It's something that we can dip into. Yeah. I know it's more and more difficult as you live with greater suffering, mm -hmm. but there are examples who have really set the bar on this. I mean, I'm thinking of Viktor Frankl in the death camps, the Nazi death camps, mm -hmm. how he was able to use his inner freedom to visualize the smile of his wife among the excrement and the, the, the barbarity that was all around him. But he was able to take some moments to really feel that, to fully experience that connection with his wife and memories, maybe at a picnic or with the sunshine. And that is always with us. That is always with us. We always just have to us. tap into it. It's always there. We just have to tap into it. And, and Stephen Hawking, I mean, you know, with ALS, mm -hmm. you know, one of the most disabling diseases. And yet he was able to go into a place of cosmic connection. Yeah. That was his wonder. That was, and also his freedom, his, his, his choice mm -hmm. to not, you know, over-identify with the illness itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But to look at what, what is being exposed here beyond it. What is the more of who I am coming into the more of who one is? Such a powerful uh, move toward life-enhancing anxiety. Yeah. Wow, what a wonderful discussion. Uh, thank you. So, uh, uh, Kirk Schneider, you're a psychologist, psychotherapist, author. 
Uh, and your book, again, uh, to remind everyone, is Life Enhancing Anxiety, Key to a Sane World. I think it's mandatory reading. I think everybody should read it. And I, I love your insights and then completely agree with you, which is rare. I don't usually completely agree with <laughs> you. disagree, too. That's and, part of Life Enhancing Anxiety. And, 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 and it's fine. But it's like it's just so also refreshing because a lot of things that I talk about, here at home and on my podcast and to everyone else and uh, uh it just feels like that confirmation that yeah there is somebody who who, who thinks the same way and it's uh, thank you so much thank you so much well, thank you Arash. I, I do feel like you're very much a kindred soul and I, I really appreciate your engagement in this interview yes thank you very much <laughs>